You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Mickey Spillane, Crusader for Justice, by Shoshana Milgram. I want you to hear every word I say. I want you to tell it to everyone you know. And when you tell it, tell it strong, because I mean every word of it. There are 10,000 mugs that hate me, and you know it. They hate me because if they mess with me, I shoot their damn heads off. I've done it, and I'll do it again." Unquote, right? (laughs) That was the voice of my camera, the hero created by Mickey Spillane. And we do hear every word he says. And after what I just read you in the novel, the next words he says are these. Jack, you're dead now. You can't hear me anymore. Maybe you can, I hope so. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. You've known me a long time, Jack. My word is good as long as I live. I'm going to get the louse that killed you. And finally this. No matter who it is, Jack, I'll get the one. Remember, no matter who it is, I promise. Okay, this is the introduction to Mike Hammer in the first scene of I, the Jury, which was the first novel in which he appeared. Mike speaks first to Pat Chambers, who's the uh, captain of Homicide, he's a police officer, and then he speaks to the spirit of Jack Williams, his old war buddy, who lies murdered before him. Now, Jack Williams had said that he would give his right arm for his friend, and he did. When an enemy soldier was attacking, Jack Williams put up his arm, he took a bayonet in the bicep, and his, am- his arm had to be amputated. And now he's dead. This novel was published in 1947, 75 years ago. Ayn Rand, as you know, read that novel, and perhaps you've read it too. And if you've read the novel, you know that in the final scene of I, the Jury, Mike Hammer keeps to the letter the promise he'd made. So this morning, I'm going to be asking and answering three questions. Who's Mike Hammer? who's Mickey Spillane, and why do they matter? I'm going to start with Mike Hammer. He's the protagonist, he's the literary figure, and I'm going to describe him to you. I'll try to do it without too many spoilers. What I want you to do is to observe his actions, to see his soul, and to hear his voice. And then I'm going to tell you about Mickey Spillane, the writer who created him, and about Spillane's life and his other creative work. And because I'm speaking to you at an objectivist conference, I'll look at Mike and Mickey from the standpoint of the values and virtues that are explained and um, explored in Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged, Part 3, Chapter 7. You know that chapter. Uh, This is John Galt speaking. And finally, I'll comment on how Mike and Mickey mattered to Ayn Rand herself. So, who's Mike Hammer? Well, he's a private detective, and the word private has a lot of meaning for this guy, and he pursues justice with physical and moral courage. He uses his gun, well, several guns, he uses his guns, his fists, and his mind to avenge the innocent, to destroy the evil, and to guard the good. He is not infallible, he's not always right, he is not invulnerable, he gets hurt, but he is unstoppable, he is unapologetic. He knows what he seeks, and he gets what he wants. He works on his own, private, private detective, private investigator. He refuses to be hampered by bureaucracy that interferes with his purposes. 
Although he's frequently motivated by revenge and by a personal connection to the crime he's avenging, he's not a loose cannon. My camera is a cannon under control. He's a good character. He's a man of independent judgment. He will not place anyone's judgment above his own. He, all, he does accept help, but it's help that he chooses. He judges for himself the potential usefulness of any information or physical aid from the police or from his office assistant, Velda, who is herself a licensed uh, PI, carries a gun. So he can consult others, he can ask trusted others for information or backup without compromising his independence. He's always in charge. He's a man alone, but he's not isolated. If this man is an island, it's the busy, buzzing island of Manhattan, the city that never sleeps, and sometimes it seems that Mike Hamry doesn't sleep either. He lives by a personal code. His integrity is unbreached. He's the agent of justice. The very title of that first novel highlights who he is, I the jury. He stands for the jury, for the men and women who are responsible for weighing the facts and reaching a conclusion regarding innocence or guilt. But he also is the jury. He's unanimous, he's one voice, one man with one mind and one course of action. And if you read, you know, the, the books are in the first person and the titles emphasize the singleness of my camera, I the jury. And that's, my gun is quick, vengeance is mine, kiss me deadly. Uh, it certainly seems that Mickey Spillane enjoyed writing my camera in the first person and that there was obviously a deep connection between them. Now, because we've got a first-person narrator, we don't spend a lot of time in Mike's prehistory because he's got things to do other than fill us in on his background. We learn about his past on a need-to-know basis in the sense that he mentions facts about his past when the facts are relevant to the present. Basically, he doesn't live his life on memory lane. We know he's a former police officer, we don't ex know exactly how that came to an end, but I think that we can surmise that, it was, that he was ins insubordinate. We know he's been a soldier. We don't know about his parents or his grandparents or his siblings, and he doesn't find it necessary to tell us exactly how he met all the characters who are part of his life. Nor does he inform us about his educational background. Now, we know that he has some familiarity with culture because occasionally he mentions cultural uh, artifacts. He knows Hamlet. He knows the Hungarian Rhapsody. He knows Frank's Symphony in D minor. And he knows Tchaikovsky's Pathétique, Symphony Number no. 6 in B minor, Opus 74. And yes, he mentions it. He identifies it by opus in The Body Lovers. We know something about his taste in movies, a Western, a whodunit. When he, he mentions that when he goes to the movies, but he doesn't give us uh, long recaps or critiques, unless there's some relevance. If he goes to the movies and he starts explaining to us what's important about the movies or what he thinks about it, it's reasonable to surmise that this is going to have something to do with his actions ahead, that Mike Hammer is thinking about the movie and then that helps him figure out something to do in, you might say, the movie that is his own life. He is primed to recognize a theme, an element, even a surprise that he's going to see in his own actual life as a detective. What does he look like? Mickey Spillane used to say in interviews that he deliberately did not give Mike a physical description, that Mike Hammer was, quote, 
a state of mind, unquote. Now, I think we do have the impression that Mike Hammer is physically imposing without being bulky or broad. At one point, um, he's, he even describes himself as ugly, which I think is a way of saying that he's not, shall we say, you know, movie star handsome. Now, here I am speaking about Mike Hammer in the novels because there were images of him in the Mike Hammer comics, and there were movie adaptations and television adaptations. And once you have someone on the screen, you need to have a particular person with particular features. In The Girl Hunters, as you may know, the actor portraying Mike Hammer was Mickey Spillane himself. And a lot of people think he did pretty well, that he was the best Mike Hammer. The point remains that the details of his physical appearance are not a primary interest in the fiction. Okay, now I'm going to talk about three aspects of the characterization. And if there are more things that you want to know about the characterization, you can ask me later, but I think these three are important. The first one is that the first-person perspective is very good for us as far as getting to know the character, but it's something of a challenge for a plot story. In Ayn Rand's published fiction, she used first-person narration for one work, for the novella Anthem, which, as she said, was not a plot story. The novels with plots, you know, We the Living, Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged, they give us insight into the minds of several characters, but not all the time and not all the characters. First-person narration is a special challenge for a story with suspense and a mystery. Obviously, I think, Spillane handles the challenge by showing us very well Mike Hammer in the process of putting information together, sometimes being puzzled, and eventually figuring things out. So that's one point. It's a challenge for a plot story. The second is that first-person narration is a challenge for a writer who wants to present a character as being admirable, but when the character is telling his or her own story, this can seem like boasting. You may have noticed that Arthur Conan Doyle had to give Sherlock Holmes a Dr. Watson to tell the stories of the cases and to display Sherlock's brilliance. I know, some of you are sitting there thinking that Sherlock Holmes did try twice to do the job on his own, right? There are two Sherlock Holmes stories, let's see, it's The Blanche Soldier and the Lion's Mane in which Sherlock is telling the story, Dr. Watson must be out on a call. But if you, I, I think those stories are, well, Doyle did not consider them to be an experiment to be repeated and he commented that the narration by Sherlock cramped the narrative, just saying. But Mickey Spillane managed to do it, and I think to do it well. And so now for these two points about, you know, first-person problem of boasting, first-person problem of putting you uh, in the state of him figuring things out, I'm going to give you a little episode, and I don't think it's a significant spoiler as far as ruining the story. I think of this as something like the show-off episodes that we have in Sherlock Holmes, where he does something very intelligent in the first minutes of the story, just, you know, to show what he can do, and then afterwards we proceed to the main event. So here's this, here's this little incident that shows his mind at work, and, it's, and it comes from one lonely night. Yeah. He's investigating a murder that actually took place practically right in front of him, a murder involving people associated with a secret communist group. So he comes to a meeting of this group, he shows up with a green card, supposed to identify him, which he took from a dead man, and he pretends that he belongs there. He allows the communists to assume that he is the new operative replacing the former leader who's been murdered. 
and they're watching him. So he's basically trying to play the part and to figure out what they're thinking. He picks up a mimeographed piece of paper, skims it, tosses it down, and succeeds in making most of the communists believe that he is, quote, in on the pipeline from Moscow, unquote. So then he is invited to have coffee in a tiny conference room. So let my camera tell it. When the door closed, there were seven of us in the room, including two dames. Trench coat, that's a young man in a trench coat, got a tray of cups from the closet and set them on the table. For me, it was a fight between grinning and stamping somebody's face in. For an after-office hours coffee deal, it certainly was a high-tension deal. To keep from grinning, I shoved another Lucky, that's a cigarette, in my mouth and struck a light to it. There they were, everyone with a coffee cup, lined up at the urn. Because I took my time with the smoke, I had to join the end of the line, and it was a good thing I did. It gave me time to get the pitch. Everybody had been watching me covertly anyway, saying little, and satisfied with me keeping my mouth shut. When they took their coffee black and wandered off to the table, the two women made a face at the bitter taste. They didn't like black coffee. They weren't used to black coffee. Yet they took black coffee and kept shooting me those sidewise glances. How simple can people get? Did they take everybody for dummies like themselves? When I drew my cup from the urn, Trenchcoat stood right behind me and waited. He was the only one that bothered to breathe, and he breathed down my neck. I took my sugar and milk. I took plenty of it. I turned around and lifted my cup and a mock toast. And all the jerks started breathing again, and the room came to life. The two women went back and got sugar and milk. The whole play had been a signal setup a kid could have seen through. Trenchcoat smiled happily. It is very good you are here, comrade. We cannot be too careful, of course. Of course. It was the first time I had said anything, but you might have thought I gave the Gettysburg Address. Okay, so that's, that's, that's my camera. And you can see it's kind of fun for us to watch him figuring out what's going on and how to make them think that he belongs. Now that one comes from One Lonely Night, and Ayn Rand named One Lonely Night and The Long Wait as Mickey Spillane's best novels, and One Lonely Night is the one of those two that she named that stars my camera. It's also the novel whose opening paragraphs she featured in her fiction writing course. And then she analyzes it also in the Romantic Manifesto based on that course in part. So I recommend that book. She recommended it, I recommend it. It's worth attention. It has strong writing and a surprising resolution, which I will not give you. Not, not right now, anyway. Okay. Now I'm going to tell you about a third aspect of the characterization of my camera from the first person that I think is very powerful. He tells his own story featuring his skills without being boastful, without ruining the suspense, and he also defends himself morally. That he's not only efficacious, but he's right. He's morally right. And this is especially vivid in One Lonely Night, where his moral stature has been denigrated. We see how he responds when he's attacked on moral grounds. Okay? By the time One Lonely Night was published in 1951, Mickey Spillane had seen his hero attacked as if the hero were a villain 
as if Mike and Mickey were preoccupied with sex and violence to the point of degradation. Later on, I'll read you a little bit from reviews, but if you were around at the time, you, you would have seen the way that he was very unfairly attacked. Well, that novel begins and ends with violence as a fact and as an issue. Near the beginning, he's been castigated in court by a judge who hated him and who attacked Mike with words because he, the judge, had no way to take legal action against him. As Mike says, the judge's voice, quote, changed into disgusted hatred because I was a licensed private investigator who knocked off someone who needed knocking off bad, and he couldn't get to me, unquote. Mike had acted in self-defense, but that didn't matter to the judge. Now, what Mike Hammer minds is not the attack itself, but the judge's dwelling on Mike's war record and attributing Mike's current behavior to his wartime experiences. Mike summarizes what the judge said, quote, he had to go back five years to a time he knew of only secondhand and tell me how it took a war to show me the power of the gun and the obscene pleasure that was brutality and force, the spicy sweetness of murder sanctified by law, unquote. In other words, the judge thinks that war made Mike a killer who enjoys killing. Mike then edits what the judge said. He offers a more eloquent articulation of what the judge said. And this is Mike's version. I, as he's quote, I could have made it sound better if I'd said it. There in the muck and slime of the jungle, there in the stink that hung over beaches rising from the bodies of the dead, there in the half-light of too many dusks and dawns, laced together with the crisscrossed pattern of bullets, I'd gotten a taste of death and found it palatable to the extent that I could never again eat the fruits of a normal civilization, unquote. That's pretty good writing. You know, he's a better writer than the judges. And he does this, though, I think, without endorsing what the judge has said. He's got this you know, lovely periodic sentence. And essentially, he's critiquing the judge's language and Eventually, he's going to also critique what he says. But before that, he's got one more quotation. I'm going to give you one more quotation from Mike summarizing what the judge said. The judge, quote, prophesied a reign of purity that was going to wash me into the sewer with the other scum, leaving only the good and the meek to walk in the cleanliness of law and justice, unquote. Well, Mike tells us that he intended to answer with a sneer, but the judge dismissed him first. So what's happened in this novel is that Mickey Spillane has given voice to the attacks on Mike Hammer as a killer who liked killing for its own sake. And he's even allowed Mike to pay attention to and to improve the language in which the judge had framed his insults. But he does keep thinking about it. During the novel, he keeps casting his mind back to the judge. Without accepting guilt, without agreeing with the judge's judgment, he does wonder about his own nature. Who is he at base? And why does he keep killing and escaping death? He keeps asking the question raised by the judge. He continues to reflect on the problem of the judge. So that's near the beginning. But by the time we get to the end, we've got Mike Hammer's answer about his violence. I'll give you that in a minute. But before that, and actually pretty close to it, we also deal with the question of sex. Mickey Spillane allows the novel to respond to the accusation that Mike Hammer is preoccupied with sex in its crudest form. 
And I'm going to give you the scene, but without the full context, but I want to read you some of what Mike sees and thinks. He sees a woman being tortured to make her talk, to reveal secrets. The bad guy says, you'll die if you don't tell me. And the woman, she never opened her mouth, says Mike. She's brave and she's defiant. And then Mike describes her. Then there was only beauty to the nakedness of her body, a beauty of the flesh that was more than the sensuous curve of breasts drawn high under the weight of her body, more than those long, full legs, more than the ebony of her hair. There was the beauty of the flesh that was the beauty of the soul. Unquote. And then he says something else. He says, it is this that is under attack by, quote, the philosophy that lived under a red flag. Unquote. Well, of course, it's not 1951 anymore, but this to me does not exactly sound like sleazy sex. You know, this is... It's, you know, it's, it's not sleazy. There is sex, but it's, you know, it's part of the story. Well, it will not surprise you to know that Mike Hammer rescues the woman of beautiful flesh and soul. And when he rescues her, he weeps with the power of his emotion. And I'm going to quote this again. I cut her down carefully, dressed her, Right, put her clothes on, yep. cradled her in my arms like a baby and knew that I was crying. Me, I could still do that. I felt her fingers come up and touch one of the wet spots on my cheek, heard her say the three words that blessed everything I did. Then I went back to the path that led out into the night that was still cold and rainy, but still free to be enjoyed. There was a soft spot on the ground where I laid her with my coat under her head while I went back to do what I had to do, back to work. Well, I think that speaks for itself. Now, this does not happen to be a passage that the Spillane haters cite, but it's right there in the book. It's right next to the physical force. It's right next to the physical description, and it's about someone who exercises force in defense of the woman he loves. And... In addition to attaining a kind of emotional deliverance, and of course he saved her, he also achieves a personal epiphany, an explicit answer to the words of the judge at the outset of the novel, an answer to the question he's been asking, a solution to the problem of the judge. Quote, and in that moment of eternity, I heard the problem asked and I knew the answer. I knew while I, why I was allowed to live while others died. I smashed through the door of the room with the Tommy gun in my hands, spitting out the answer at the same time my voice screamed it to the heavens. I lived to kill the scum and the lice that wanted to kill themselves. I lived to kill so that others could live. I was the evil that opposed other evil. Now, he shouldn't have called himself evil, but still, that opposed other evil, leaving the good and the meek in the middle to live and inherit the earth. Now, remember what that judge said? The judge said that a rain of purity would wash away my camera, leaving only the good and the meek to walk in the cleanliness of law and justice. Well, Mike remembered that. And a careful reader, I think, would remember what the judge said. And um, Max Allen Collins, I'll tell you about him later, he was Mickey's literary executor. He noticed that too, and noticed how there was a kind of full circle and an answer. And he's commented on the way that Mike Hammer comments on what the judge said. 
and I think we too can comment. No judge, washing away my camera is no way to protect the good. Washing away my camera would leave the good helpless. The good in this fiction can live and thrive only if my camera is on the job. And of course, my camera's on the job only when Mickey Spillane's on the job. So now I'm going to tell you about Mickey Spillane. He was born Frank Morrison Spillane in Brooklyn on March 9, 1918. He attended Erasmus High School in Flatbush, a school with many famous alums from different times. And during the time that, around the time Mickey was there, Herbert Aptecker, the Marxist historian, was there, and the author Bernard Malamud was there, and the actors Eli Wallach and Jeff Chandler and Susan Hayward, and in later times, many other people. I mentioned it to someone who said, oh yeah, Bobby Fischer went there. Yeah, but he dropped out. And um, just, just saying. All right. Mickey Spillane, after, after high school, began writing for the slicks, the pulps, and the comics. He worked as a lifeguard and a store clerk. The day after Pearl Harbor, he enlisted and became a fighter pilot and a flight instructor. So where does the writing come in? After the war, when he was married and seeking to buy a home, he needed money. In a matter of days, sometimes he said nine days, sometimes he said 19 days, but not that many days. Uh, he wrote the first Mike Hammer, and Dutton published it in hardcover, and then Signet published it in softcover, and that sold you know, millions of copies, and a star was born. So what happened after that? Many reviewers dismissed or condemned Spillane's writing. Many readers, undeterred, devoured the books anyway. I am now going to quote from a few of the critics. This is not a pleasant task, and I will be, like his gun, quick. All right, New York Times. Overheated, unbelievable, disorganized, and preoccupied with violence for violence's sake. That's it. Saturday Review, a wholly unadmirable kind of wish fulfillment on both an immature and a potentially destructive level. James Sando, an inept vulgarian. I always wondered about that, right? Would an adept vulgarian be better, but, you know, sort of like a <laughs> double insult, an inept vulgarian. And then there's Malcolm Cowley, who was a major writer, who said that he was, explain, was a paranoid sadist and masochist. Well, Disdain from the critics, said Mickey Spillane, did not bother him. He was interviewed by Scott McConnell for 100 Voices, you know, a book of interviews with people who knew Ayn Rand, and in there he said, I never pay any attention to critics. They got their book for free, so shut up. <laughs> yeah. They never bothered me. I had some of the worst articles ever written about a writer. You know, when they pick on the audience, and they say, you're stupid if you read books by so-and-so. All they're doing is knocking themselves in the head. The people buy a book because they want to read it. And the people certainly bought millions of copies of the Mike Hammer books. And Mickey Spillane, I think, appropriately enjoyed his sales. In the late 1950s, he commented in an interview, there was a little character on a television program who said to me, it's a terrible commentary on American reading habits that in the top 10 fiction bestsellers of the last 50 years, you have seven. And I said, ah, shut up. You're lucky I didn't write three more. <laughs> All right, true story. In an interview in 100 Voices, and he said this other times too, he said, I was the fifth most widely translated writer in the world. Ahead of me were Lennon, Tolstoy, Gorky, 
Jules Verne, and then me. I have to say, the other four were all dead. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, he's been translated many times, and by now I believe I've you know, read that more than 225 million copies of his books have been sold. Okay, so those are, you know, the Mike Hammer books are a lot of the sales, but just to tell you about what else he was doing, I'm going to tell you about some of the other things that he wrote. Okay, we've got the four Tiger Man novels. Man with two ends, but nonetheless, yeah, Joe. Uh, they are concerned with the world of espionage. They were published in the years 1964 to 66, and I think it's not a coincidence that this time corresponded with the end of the career of Ian Fleming, who died in 1964. And the last James Bond novel published during, by him, published during Fleming's lifetime, was The Man with the Golden Gun, which he himself did not want to publish as is. He was winding down anyway. Well, Ian Fleming's gone, but the espionage fiction had sold well, and Mickey Splane thought that it was worth taking a crack at that, and he may have thought of himself as taking a baton handed to him by Fleming and moving forward with espionage background, but combined with his characteristic New York setting and with Spillane's own style of dialogue and characterization. These books were not as successful with readers as the My Camera books, and as you may know, Ayn Rand objected to some of the muddled or wrong political implications within them. So, the, the Tiger Mans. There were also the standalone novels, including The Long Wait, which is one of the two Ayn Rand especially liked. The Long Wait involves, without spoilers, a hero with the usual revenge motive and an unusual mental state, selective amnesia. He's seeking the facts about an injustice done to someone he respects, and he's seeking simultaneously the truth about his own identity. I especially like a novel called The Flyer, uh, which is a mystery and an aviation story concerning a World War II pilot seeking to vindicate, you know, again, a friend accused of treason while also seeking to defend against the actual treason. And there are others. And then there's the Delta Factor. A lot of people like the Delta Factor. It featured a character called Morgan the Raider, who was named for a pirate, and is himself a sort of a pirate. He is unjustly imprisoned for theft, but they let him out temporarily in order to rescue a scientist who is imprisoned in a rose castle. It has the swashbuckling spirit of Alexandre Dumas, who was, in fact, a favorite writer of Mickey Spillane's. Now, the next in the series was called The Consumata, and Mickey Spillane drafted it, but it wasn't actually published until after his death, and it was edited and published by Max Allen Collins, his literary executor. And I, I think they're both you know, exciting, and I, I wouldn't have minded reading more of those. Now I'm going to take a minute to introduce Max. I want you to know who he is. He was a friend of Mickey Spillane's, and he was the one Mickey asked to complete the Mike Hamper, Hammer novel that he was working on when he died. It was published as The Goliath Bone. Max was also interested with all the rest of Mickey Spillane's notes and manuscripts, and I think that he's a master of the master's voice. He's done a lot of work over time completing and editing Mickey's books and stories. He also co-wrote a biography of Mickey Spillane, and he's done another one that's supposed to come out within the year, and I'll tell you a little more about that later. He's also a writer in his own right, well-known for The Road to Perdition. So, 
Back to more on Mickey Spillane. He wrote a young adult series starring Josh and Larry. The first was The Day the Sea Rolled Back from 1979, and then The Ship That Never Was, 1982, and the third one was The Shrinking Island, and that one just got published uh, recently. You know, uh, Max uh, put it together, and the three, you can read all three together. And these, I, I think that these are quite entertaining. Um, Nicky Splane said that he tried to adopt the point of view of a child. It's a boys' adventure series set in the Caribbean, the search for sunken treasure and the rescue of a sailor and the discovery of a lost island and other acts of daring and danger. And I think that part of what he was doing here was he wanted to do something new. And this is definitely something new. And so if you have children who were maybe, you know, too young for the Fountainhead, I think that they could certainly read these books by Mickey Spillane and would not have any trouble grasping what's going on and enjoying them. Now, the, the first one, I think, is especially fun because we've got these two young boys who are searching for treasure on a ship. Meanwhile, there are two nefarious adults who are trying to kill them for various reasons. So we've got cross-cutting between the boys and the bad men. And I told you it's, it's a series, so you know the boys do survive and uh, th things work out. There was also a shark. Uh, and Mickey Spillane, I think, uh, gives us there an exciting story in an exotic setting. And then there were the comics. Before writing his novels, and even in between novels and stories, Mickey Spillane wrote what they call you know, graphic novels, graphic narratives. And Max Allen Collins, our hero, has reprinted and edited these collected stories. Now, I'm not a collector of comics, not that there's anything wrong with that, but so I'm not able to put them up against other comics, but I did buy the books that Max put together notably from the files of Mike Hammer, the complete dailies and Sundays. And as it happens, Mickey Spillane said that Ayn Rand was interested in this work. And when they became friends, one of the things they talked about was the comic book writing. And as he remembered it, it was pictorial, and she was interested in the fact that we were writing high-class stuff and we had a vast audience. You only get a vast audience when you're a good writer. And the two of them did have you know, friendship and a relationship, and in a later talk today, I'll be emphasizing that. But I just thought you might be interested to know that if you're thinking, oh, comic books, I don't want to know about that, she wanted to know about that. That was interesting to her. Now, my own personal favorites among the non-Mike Hammer books are those written by Max Allen Collins from an unproduced script idea, notes, and published fairly recently in the years 2015 to 2021. Mickey Spillane was a friend of John Wayne. Mickey appeared as himself in the film Ring of Fear, a circus mystery story. I'll say that again, a circus mystery story, uh, produced by Batjack, Wayne's production company, and Mickey is reported to have edited the script uncredited in later scenes that were added and that were shot, not by the original director, but by the experienced director, William Wellman, whom you may know is the director of Wings, the first movie to win an Oscar, and of The Public Enemy. So there was serious talent involved in this movie, and apparently John Wayne was very grateful for Mickey's help on it, gave him a car. Um, Mickey also had ideas for films that were gonna be produced by that company, but that would be starring John Wayne himself, or possibly Randolph Scott. And this is a series of films that were going to be the, sa the Saga of Caleb York, I like that name, set in Trinidad, New Mexico. Now, there wasn't any Trinidad, New Mexico, but in the books there is, and you can kind of imagine that setting when you read the books.
Here's a quotation from Mickey Spillane that stands at the front of the first of the Caleb York books. Heroes never died. John Wayne isn't dead. You can't kill a hero. In that book, The Legend of Caleb York, Caleb is a man with no name initially, a gunslinger who rides into town and takes on the task of helping George Cullen, a ranch owner who is blind, but not so blind as all that, that he can't see a threat. There's a corrupt sheriff, there's a corrupt deputy, and they are killing Cullen's ranch hands and trying to take over the ranch and also to take over his beautiful daughter. Well, Caleb kills the sheriff, kills the deputy, kills the scheme, and wins the heart of Willa Cullen, the beautiful daughter. The second book, The Big Showdown, is prefaced by a quotation from John Wayne. All the screen cowboys before me behaved like real gentlemen. They didn't drink, they didn't smoke. When they knocked the bad guy down, they always stood with their fists up, waiting for the heavy to get back on his feet. I decided I was going to drag the bad guy to his feet and keep hitting him. Okay, that's John Wayne. All right. In the big showdown, Caleb is on his way out of town. He has found a replacement sheriff, and he is headed for San Francisco to be a Pinkerton detective. But then the bad guys kill the replacement sheriff, and the cousin of the corrupt sheriff from the previous book has arrived to rescue the town from a recent bank robbery. And we're kind of worried about him. Meanwhile, the brothers of the corrupt deputy from the first book, they're on their way into town. So let's just say that uh, Caleb doesn't go to San Francisco. He's got things to do. Then there's the third book, uh, The Bloody Spur, and now Caleb is the sheriff. And the issue in this book, interestingly, is the railroad, the arrival of the Santa Fe Railroad, which is going to be built right through the Cullen Ranch. So there's a conflict. And then there's Last Stage in Hell Junction, Hot Lead, Cold Justice, and Shootout in Sugar Creek. That's the sixth one, which has just been nominated for an award. So maybe there'll be more. Now, they haven't been filmed, but when you read them, you almost feel as if you're watching a movie. I certainly can, and um, I, I do typically picture John Wayne as Caleb, but it's also kind of a combination. It's as if we've got Mike Hammer on a horse, you know, the sheriff of Trinidad, New Mexico. So, so far, I've been telling you about plots and themes and characterization. For details, see the novels themselves. I wanted to mention, just as far as characterizing Mickey Splane and his writing, something that was important that he discussed in his conversations with Ayn Rand. And when he was interviewed for 100 Voices, what aspects of writing did you discuss? He said, we discussed subject matter and ways of writing a story. One of the things she always appreciated was the fact that people don't read a book to get to the middle. They read a book to get to the end and hope the ending is so great that it justifies all the time they spent in reading it. You have to get to the end of the book and say, wow, that's the biggest part of the book. We talked about things like that. Now, he also said the beginning's important, right? The beginning sells the book. You need to read the book, and the ending sells the next book. So that's most of my second part, what I want to tell you about Mickey Spillane. There are other things. It is true that he appeared in a fair number of advertisements for Miller's Light Beer. It is also true that in 1951 or 1952, he became a Jehovah's Witness. It's also true that he was married. He didn't talk a lot publicly about why, but it was not a, you know, it was not a pretense. He really did it. It's also true that he was married three times and that his third wife, Jane, wrote a book 
about his kindness and consideration and courage in private life. Very affectionate book. For more information about his life outside the writing, I recommend that first biography, One Lonely Night. And in the near future, there's going to be a new biography. Mysterious Press is bringing it out, and it's going to be called Spillane, King of Pulp Fiction. Now, that book, according to Max, is going to address a mystery that pertains to both Mickey Spillane's life and his writing. And here I'm going to quote, I'm not exactly an infomercial for the book, but I'm going to quote what Max has been telling us about the mystery that he will reveal in this book. Okay, and we're going to read here first from the introduction to a collection, Stand Up and Die, a collection of previously uncollected Mickey. The biggest mystery has been why Spillane did not write a Mike Hammer novel or even a Hammer short story for the 10 years that separated Kiss Me Deadly, 1952, and The Girl Hunters, 1962. After all, he says, Spillane was not just the most internationally popular mystery writer of the 1950s and early 1960s. He was the best-selling author in America, period. Much speculation he says, has been bandied about to explain the long wait between Spillane novels. Mickey was suffering from writer's block, or he had too much money coming in from radio and comic strips and movies to bother, or his religious conversion to the conservative Jehovah's Witnesses made him swear off his sex and violence style, or he was too caught up in pursuits like deep sea treasure hunting, hot rod racing, touring with the Clyde Beatty Circus, and skydiving. While each of these, he says, holds a grain of truth, the real reason turned up in research for the biography I've written, which he, was, he thinks is going to come out in January uh, 2023. And I'll reserve the right not to reveal the solution of that mystery until the biography's publication. He also teases the solution in a blog post from his website, November 23, 2021. And here he describes his process in working on the biography, which was interesting to me because I also have an interest in biographical writing. And what he said is what surprised me was reading all the material about Mickey I'd gathered going back to my junior high days. I literally used the scrapbook I kept because it had various articles and reviews pasted in among my carbons of indignant letters I'd written to anti-Spillane reviewers and my cartoony portraits of Mickey what I hadn't anticipated was the picture all of that material would paint when for the first time I read it all at once. I feel like I put together pieces of the Spillane puzzle that had eluded me despite my close personal relationship with the man for the last 25 years of his life. Many assumptions I'd made and had cockily presented as fact in various pieces and introductions about Mickey and his work over the recent years proved short-sighted not wrong exactly, but lacking nuance. And I'm still with Max. For example, he says, I no longer think that his conversion to the Jehovah's Witnesses had much to do with anything much to do with the near decade-long respite he took from novel writing. I do think his style shifted, and the violence and sex were both more restrained, but not absent. Rereading The Deep, that's a standalone recently, I saw how he used the threat of impending violence to create a story about a tough hero who really only kills once, and then only in self-defense. In The Girl Hunters, Hammer kills nary a soul, though he does trick the evil one into self-destruction. This probably had as much to do with his attempt to develop as a writer and to respond 
to respond through his work to the incredibly unfair and even vicious attacks upon him throughout the 1950s. Other than Elvis Presley, no figure in popular culture had ever seen so much success and simultaneously so much condemnation. But the bio will, for the first time, reveal the major reason he stopped writing novels at his popular peak. Well, that's what Max says. So, what's the answer to why Mickey took a break? I don't know. Um, was he perhaps on strike? Have to wait. Inquiring minds want to know, and speaking for myself, I just can't wait. So, finally. Why do my camera and Mickey Spillane matter? I'm going to start with the obvious, you know, going back to Atlas Shrugged. He possesses the three, supreme, quote, supreme and ruling values of man's life. Reason, purpose, self-esteem. All over. He uses his mind, consciously directed to the truth he wants to discover. He has goals that his truth-seeking will enable him to achieve. And he will not quit until he's reached the end of his quest. And of course, as you can tell from the way he speaks, he's got self-confidence in his ability and self-respect for his moral nature. He also identif uh, exemplifies the, the virtues identified in that same chapter, chapter seven, part three, Atlas Shrugged. Rationality, independence, integrity, honesty, justice, productiveness, and pride. Now, they're interlocking virtues. They're related to each other. So, my camera lives by his mind, his own mind, his whole mind, nothing but his mind, no compromise or fraud. I think that takes care of rationality, independence, integrity, and honesty. That's his job. He, he recognizes his own worth. He asserts his nonstop, ongoing moral merit. That's pride. Now, productiveness, you might think, well, you know, he doesn't build anything, but he actually does exemplify the process by which man's consciousness controls his existence, a constant process of acquiring knowledge and shaping matter to fit one's purpose or translating an idea into physical form of remaking the earth in the image of one's values. Yeah, that's, that's, that's my camera, all right. You know, shaping manner to fit his purpose. But of all the virtues, justice is the one most salient in the characterization of my camera. In the words of chapter seven, part three, Atlas Shrugged, every man must be judged for what he is and treated accordingly. Your moral appraisal is the coin paying men for their virtues or vices. My camera, after all, is the jury. But for us in this room, who are deeply interested in Ayn Rand's ideas and work, there's more to say about why Mike and Mickey matter to Ayn Rand. Okay. Mike Hammer, I believe, mattered to her because she saw him as a hero worthy of admiration. Mickey Spillane mattered to her because she recognized the merit of his creative work. She saw his merit while also seeing that his writing is sometimes uneven and his novels are sometimes philosophically flawed regarding politics and other matters. I've chosen today to emphasize the positives, but I do see the negatives, and so did Ayn Rand. Nonetheless, she saw much to celebrate. And she saw that he was being dismissed or denigrated unjustly. She wanted to do justice to him in a public forum. She was a friend of his privately, but that wasn't enough. She also wanted to be a public supporter. She wrote an essay about him for her weekly column in the Los Angeles Times. 
She chose to stand up for him and to speak up for him. Those of you who said, who's Mickey Spillane? Well, you can see her essay reprinted in the Objectivist Newsletter and in the Ayn Rand column, or if you want to go back to the archives of the Los Angeles Times. And today, in line with what I've been saying, I want to share to, with you some of what she wrote. She wrote, Mickey Spillane, and this is, I'm not reading the whole thing, but I'm going to read a lot of it. Mickey Spillane is one of the best writers of our time. He's won an enormous popular following, but no acknowledgement. He stands as a measure of the gulf between the public and its alleged intellectual leaders. And then she goes into that some length. And she says, those intellectuals feel hatred for any projection of man as a clean, self-confident, efficacious being. They extol depravity. They relish the sight of man spitting in his own face. The object of their deepest hatred and fear is moral values. What they hate him for is the fact that Mickey Spillane is an intransigent moral crusader. Well, maybe it takes one to know one. But that was, she noticed that and she wanted to say it. Back to her article. Detective fiction presents in simple primitive essentials the conflict of good and evil. That is the root of its appeal. Mickey Spillane is a moral absolutist. His characterizations are excellent and drawn in black and whites. There are no slippery half-tones, no cowardly evasions, no cynicism, and no forgiveness. There are no doubts about the evil of evil. Still Ayn Rand? Spillane's view of life has a strong element of tragic bitterness. He projects the belief that evil is powerful, a view with which I do not agree, but that man has the capacity to fight it and that no allowances, concessions, or compromises are morally conceivable or possible, with which I do agree, she says. His hero, Mike Hammer, is a moral avenger, passionately dedicated to justice, to the defense of the wronged, and to the destruction of evil. Okay. And then she talks about that and why that's needed. You know, the sense that someone somewhere is fighting against evil. Few modern writers can approach his originality, his imagination, his sense of drama, the ingenuity of his plot structures. As a writer, Mickey Spillane has a brilliant literary talent. Okay, so that's what she said about him in the Los Angeles Times. Well, I think that what's part of what's going on here, of course she believed that, but she wanted to do for him what hadn't been done for her. Okay? I want to remember what Ayn Rand's own experience was, and not just with public condemnation, which we know about that, caustic critics, but with people who admired her, who kept their mouths shut. She knew that some people admired her work and were afraid to say so. She actually wrote about this phenomenon in her introduction to the reissue of The Fountainhead in 1968. Now, this part that I'm going to read to you was not included in the published version, but I think it's pertinent here, and so I'm going to read to you from it. She said, she wrote, The instances of men who paid me unsolicited, extravagant compliments at private gatherings, but never stated it in print or on public occasions, were too numerous to mention. I do not mean the usual sort of gushers. These men were prominent literary or professional figures who had no reason to flatter me. In many cases, they did not even say it to me, but to others, without knowing that I would ever hear about it. If such were their views, they had no reason to be afraid of expressing them publicly, yet they kept silent. 
What I grasped was that this was deeper and worse than simple cowardice or conformity. For whatever complexity of reasons, whether out of fear or bewilderment or discouragement or repression or years of conditioning by altruism's vicious dichotomy between the moral and the practical, with the consequent feeling that the good is impractical and the practical has no place for values, these men were consigning their values, the things they loved or admired or enjoyed, to the airless dungeon of subjectivism as private fantasies or fragile private treasures, unfit for the sunlight of reality, too fragile to withstand the faintest touch of reality's winds. They were condemning themselves to the long, slow, undemanding, safe, desperate, trudging down a sunless road to the wonder of why no sun ray ever fell across their path. Well, that's not Ayn Rand, okay? She wasn't afraid. She wasn't bewildered. She wasn't discouraged. She certainly wasn't repressed. She wasn't a coward. She wasn't a conformist. She didn't believe that the good was impractical or that the practical had no place for values, so she stood up. She spoke up for a writer who mattered to her and for a character who mattered to her. And I think that it mattered to her that she was able to speak up for him. Okay, now, I... I'm not able to sort of see the time, but I did want to have Q&A. But if you've heard me speak before, you know I've always got extra stuff so that if there aren't enough questions, I'll tell you more things. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't ask questions. Okay? So I'll take questions now, and then there'll be more. Okay, questions. Um, my question is, what is the difference between revenge and justice? Uh, because you used both words when talking about um, Mike Hammer, and I was wondering, are they both motivated by positive, like the achievement of a positive value? Um, yeah, I wasn't sure what the difference is, especially in his context as a character. Okay, I think that's a good question. Um, and I think what you could say, of course, is that justice involves paying people in the coin that they, they deserve. And so it can be positive as well as negative. And in fact, that's really important. You know, well, that's very important, and not just to hand out justice as punishment or bad consequences, but to, to notice, to celebrate, to reward virtue. Now, revenge means that something has gone wrong and that it needs to be set right. So it's just the negative side of that, but it does, uh, be proportionate, appropriate, matching the right answer to, you might say, the right wrong. Now, as a plot motivator, I would say that uh, Mickey Spillane is handing out justice in the form, often, of revenge, because you know, that's a plot story. You could, of course, say that uh, you could have a story about someone who renders justice in the form of uh, praise and reward for those who have not received appropriate rewards, but you wouldn't ordinarily call that revenge. Okay. So justice is the wider term. Okay, thank you. Do you have knowledge of, or can you give an example of Mickey Spillane's writing ritual uh, and whether it changed <laughs> over time? And also, if you can, comment on whether he discussed his writing ritual with Ayn Rand. Okay, all right, question about um, Mickey Spillane's writing ritual. Uh, well, 
there are a couple of things to say. One of them is that uh, sometimes he just used to sit down at the typewriter and bang it out. Okay, and he had a typewriter. Um, and it's also true that uh, it's been said that sometimes he used to write in bed, um, and, you know, where he was comfortable. It's also true that he didn't do elaborate outlines and notes and editing, but that he knew what he wanted to say, and when he was ready to do it, he just did it. Now, when, as far as his conversations with Ayn Rand, they didn't discuss, as far as I know, that sort of thing, but they did talk about storytelling and what you need to think about when you're writing a story, including that you need to know what the end is, as opposed to, I don't, I don't know what... All right. There's a famous writer who, who you know, used to say, you know, I just throw my characters up in the air and I see what they're going to do, or who say, you will never believe what my character did. That's Tolstoy, but um, just, just, he, he, just, just saying, you'll never believe what my Anna did. Okay. Now, I don't even know if I believe that, he, that that's true, but it was part of, part of what he said. Now, with, with Mickey, there were no surprises. He knew what he was doing. And that's, of course, true with Ayn Rand. Uh, it's very powerful, really, when you, when you look at her surviving uh, drafts and outlines that sometimes she's got the end of the book written there as part of the preparatory notes, just saying, you know, that she knew where she was going. So I think that, I don't know if you'd call that a writing ritual. I mean, it's not like, you know, drinking celery juice or something like that, but knowing what the story required. It's also true that he did always want to know the background and the correct information about what, whatever he was writing, so that's an aspect. I don't know if you think of that as a ritual, but it was a, it was a commitment. You know, it's part of his writing religion that he would, would know the setting, he would know the equipment and so on. And, well, there's a story about, um, he, he said to one of his editors, he says, I bet I can put a mistake in a book and you won't notice it. And he did. Uh, it just had to do with the location, a particular geographical location, you know, where, where something was. But he himself would not have made that mistake just like that. He would, he would put that in um, just to see if anyone else would catch it, which they wouldn't. And Ayn Rand, as I'm sure you know, she was also very careful about uh, researching legal matters, technical matters, and, and so on, that she wanted to know, uh, in addition to all the philosophical material and the characterization and so on, if she was dealing with a real time and a real place, she wanted to be authentic to that. What I think is true is that um, they recognized that they were alike in caring about plots and that they were alike in caring about positive figures, and as somebody once said, you know, men to match my mountains, that the characters had to fit the plots, and that they were not going to be, you know, just sort of silly characters uh, doing heroic things in their spare time, but that, uh, you know, the, the characters of substance and dignity, and my camera does have dignity. I mean, he talks in slang, but, but he has self-respect and dignity that they would not be less than themselves, and that that also was an aspect. I think that, um, I, I, I'm trying to think if I can remember anything else by way of ritual for him. He wrote a lot of notes, which is why Max Allen Collins has had a lot to do with, and he left them behind. And in Ayn Rand's case, we do not have dozens and dozens and dozens of unfinished Ayn Rand books that can be put together. We just don't, you know, 
She did not do that. So that would be a difference. Uh, also, a difference which I think is um, basically the credit of both of them is that he has a serious character in which, you know, it's the, it's the character and the events uh, show the character, but you can actually read them as, uh, separately. And Ayn Rand did not give us the further adventures of Howard Rourke. <laughs> Although some of us might like it, you know. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Another big building, you know, and, and another, well, or another issue or another problem to solve. I, I don't mean to, to make fun, but I think that book is complete in itself. And, um, well, Mickey Spillane's books are complete in themselves, but he also wanted to revisit the character and send that character out on other parallel adventures, partly actually because unlike Rourke, he's not building something that's going to last. He's taking care of something so that the rest of us can go back to normal life. So I, I think it kind of makes sense that um, Mickey wrote a series and that Ayn Rand didn't, even though I, I wouldn't mind knowing the further adventures of our characters. That's the best I can do. If I find out anything else, I'll let you know. Thank you for this fascinating talk. I was interested in your description of, of Ayn Rand's article in the LA Times as an act of justice. Yes. I wonder if Mickey Spillane ever was in the position to return the favor, and if he ever did. Okay, that's an interesting question. Well, I, I think there are different kinds of justice. I, I think that Mickey Spillane did say positive things about Iran, but I think that he probably recognized that Mickey Spillane giving an interview saying, I really like that Ayn Rand, might be something of a mixed blessing, given, given his reputation and given you know, the, the difference in the types of work they did. What is true is that he gave her a different kind of justice. He gave her the justice of appreciation. And the two of them were friends and that they liked each other. And that, that was something that she didn't get all the time. That, and, and from a professional who knew how to write even though the other books are different, but there, there are some quads that are the same. And she really liked hearing from him, and she liked seeing him, and she liked knowing him. And I don't think that it would have helped her to have him write a column in the LA Times about her, but that he, he certainly was very grateful for her appreciation and also recognizing that she might see things in his work that he couldn't articulate as well as she could. If you read his interview in 100 Voices, you get some sense of what his attitude was like. And I guess I can tell you something that, yeah, I, I, I think I can, I, I can tell you this. Uh, it's not something I'm talking about at the lunch later today. When, when I think about the two of them being together and enjoying each other's work without necessarily talking shop, but also not talking shop, it reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in The Fountainhead. You know, the, one of my favorite scenes in The Fountainhead is the, is the description of what was like when work was being done on the Stoddard Temple. And Mike Donegan and Howard Rourke and Stephen Mallory and Don Nick would, would hang around afterwards, just hanging out, you know, and drinking and laughing, and Rourke would laugh in a way he would never laugh anywhere else, just for people who enjoyed being together. And we don't have a lot of scenes like that. You know, we usually have battles to fight and work to do, but you know, just four people who enjoy do, being together because of the work they do together, and it's part of their context, even though they're not now doing it. And privately, I've always called that, now comes Miller time, you know? 
And so, hey, you know, he does the ads for Miller Lite, what can you say? Um, it's, it's, I don't drink beer, but, um, but I, I appreciate the idea of Miller time and of wanting to celebrate something that facilitates people enjoying themselves together. So he gave her that, and I think that was a big deal. That's what I think. Thanks for the question. Thank you for the talk. Um, actually, I have a couple questions. First question, I remember a scene from one of the Mike Hammer novels where he describes himself as a misanthrope. And kind of along that vein, I'm curious, do you, do you regard uh, his view as, as being like a malevolent universe type view, or is that maybe not the right way to look at it? That's my first question. Uh, second question, I think for a lot of the same reasons that I've enjoyed the Mike Cameron novels so much, I also have really gotten a lot of the writings of Frank Miller. And I'm really curious about your, your views on the character of Marv in the Sin City uh, novel, or novels or, or, the, or the movies, because uh, I think I like him for a lot of the same reasons that I like Mike Hammer, actually. Okay, so those are the two questions? Okay, I'll answer the second one first because I have no information. And so, you know, I've made a note and I will take a look and maybe, you know, if I have, have a view, I'll let you know. But right now, I, I have to fake it and not, I'm not going to do that. You know, just go by what you said. However, the, uh, the notion of um, Mike Hammer saying that he's a misanthrope, there, there are a few things I can say about that. One is that he doesn't actually mean that he hates all people because, duh, you know, look, look at, he's, he's got friends, he's got Velda, he has people he admires, and people who, when they get hurt, matter to him and he wants to do something about that. So he can't actually mean that he hates everybody. It is true that he, as Raymond Chandler said in a different book, trouble is his business. And he is expecting there to be trouble. If there were no trouble, he'd be, shall we say, unemployed. Um, and yet he also does, and as Ayn Rand noticed, you know, that he's got a certain bitterness. So there is that. But I don't think it comes from the view that human beings are in essence evil because, as I said, he's got friends. And also, there's a certain aspect of characterization in some of Ayn Rand's novels that you might remember that pertains to having negative views of some people, especially in the mass. You know, and uh, Dominique has a initially, you know, less than positive view of many of the people around her. Um, Kira talks about what, you know, most people are like, and, you know, she's not interested in them. Um, for that matter, you know, Howard Rourke, I'm not, see all those people in the street? I don't care what they think about anything, including architecture. You know, so, so there is, um, there is some sense of being negative on people, especially in the aggregate. And I think that that's, that's probably true for Mike Hammer as well, which doesn't mean that he's a human being hater, because he doesn't hate himself. And, well, I, I guess I, I'm sort of trying, wrestling with the idea of whether to tell you this, and I think I can do it without, without a, I'll, I'll, I'll not do the spoiler part, um, this is an encounter that he has in a bar, and not a sexual encounter, just you know, someone he meets and talks to. And it's a woman who is you know, a, a woman of the street, and he likes her. You know, not for that purpose, but 
he likes her, and he thinks that she could have a different life. He sees possibilities in her, and he opens his wallet and gives her the money to change her wardrobe and change her life. I won't tell you what happens after that. But, you know, just that's not the action of a misanthrope. Right. And, you know, he just says, oh, well, this is something I can do. And it's not that he goes around all the bars, you know, handing out money to people, but he liked her. He liked her. You know, they, they had a conversation and he liked her. And he saw her as someone who was a victim, not through just her own choices. And he wanted, he wanted to change things. So that's, well, that's as far as I'm going to go with that one. But it's just, it's just, like, just like a little incident. And I think it shows you something of, of what, um, of Mike, my camera. Thank and you. as far as the other, I don't know about this Marv. So I'll have to look into that. Yes. First of all, thank you for avoiding spoilers. I've never read Mickey's Palaine before, so I have a simple question. What's your advice for which books of his to start with? Well, um, I, I, I think that One Lonely Night is, is a good one to start with. I mean, for one thing, you're already ahead, because I, I, I gave you some things from it. But um, it was a favorite of Ayn Rand's. She's got this gorgeous stylistic analysis of the beginning, which you can read in The Art of Fiction, you know, edited by Tara Beckman, and you can also see it in The Romantic Manifesto. And, you know, seeing Ayn Rand analyzing someone's style is always a treat. So you could even read that and then read what Ayn Rand has to say. Uh, so that, that, that's a good, and I think it's, well, it has interesting aspects to the story. I, I like that one a lot. The, the Long Wait was another one of her favorites. It's not on my camera, but I think it's very interesting. And I, I happen to... I happen to like the early books better than the later ones, so I would probably go back to the early ones and read them, and then if you have read all of them and want to keep going, you could read some of the later ones, but I'd probably go more in order than, um, than, than start with the late ones. Thank you. Oh, that's what I think. Hi, thank you so Hi. much for this. Um, I'm very excited to potentially dive into some of these books. I've never read Mickey Spillane before. Um, uh, but I, I wanted to ask a question about something you mentioned, uh, Ayn Rand standing up for Mickey Spillane, and also some of uh, what I'd never heard before, but you mentioned that she talked about um, people who admired her who didn't stand mm -hmm. up for her writing. And I was wondering, do you think that the failure of some intellectuals who admired Ayn Rand to write or stand up for her has set back the spreading of objectivism and like the, uh, the spreading of objectivism uh, and and also would you do you think that that would count uh, do you think would you characterize that as cowardice cowardice well that's an interesting question the people who didn't speak up and what, what's the impact of that and what are the motivations I'm not one of them so I don't know um, just I think sometimes people are embarrassed to say something that they know is going to likely to incur disapproval, and so they keep their mouth shut. Um, I think also that to some extent, as long as books are in print, people can find them, and so it's not as if the books disappeared from the universe because they were not promoted. What's very, it's, it's, it's just, it's embarrassing, really, to, to think of people being ashamed to admit what they like. And I don't kind of 
get that. I mean, if you like it, what does it mean that you're ashamed to say? There's the expression guilty pleasures, which is something of a joke, and I, I, I kind of understand that a little bit. It means this is something I like, but I might have a little difficulty explaining why. Maybe they don't know why, but you've probably heard some variety of this. I used to like Ayn Rand, and then I grew up. I used to like Ayn Rand, and then I smartened, ugh, you know. So some of that, you know, has to do with, with that. I'm sort of trying to figure out if I want to tell a story. No, you have to. <laughs> All right, I'll, 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 I'll tell you something of this story. Okay. All right, this is, well, I, I, I had to do something. Um, this was um, a well-known critic who wrote for a major publication, and he wrote that there were some books that he had loved and that he was ashamed to admit that he, had, that he loved. These were books that he you know, loved when he was young, ashamed to admit that he loved them. And he listed them, and one of them was Atlas Shrugged. And he was a critic I liked and respected, and a good reader, and I'd kind of had it. You know, I, I, th I thought, well, that's not okay. Um, and so, so I wrote to him, and I, and I, I said, you know, I, I noticed that you said this, and I wondered what changed. You know, and was it that you found out what other people thought of Atlas Shrugged? And if so, maybe you ought to go back to the book and reread it, especially the part, you know, where Cheryl and Dagny are talking about placing nothing above the judgment of your own mind, just saying. You know? and, okay, now the, the interesting thing is, and you could probably trace this out, is that he subs, we correspond a little bit. It turned out that he actually knew quite a bit about Ayn Rand and, in fact, you know, had a lot of respect for her work, but thought that that was something to say. And I commented, I said, all right, well, you respect her work, but what is some kid going to think? You know, some kid growing up who reads what you said and thinks, oh, well, here's this famous critic who's now embarrassed to like Atlas Shrugged. What do you think about that? And he didn't answer that part. But I kept sort of following over the years, and I did see in a later column, he listed masterpieces, and he said such masterpieces as, and Albert Shrugged was one of them. So he never kind of wrote to me, but I guess I figured that I'd called him on this, and that he figured he'd better admit uh, what the story was, and he did subsequently write an essay on, uh, on Atlas Shrugged that was you know, quite favorable. So, just saying, yeah. Now, it wouldn't be too hard to figure out who it is, but um, I have not been in touch with him, and so I don't feel quite comfortable in um, doing more as far as quoting our, our email correspondence, which was back in the old days. I don't think I've even got that email account, but I did print up our exchanges. But, you know, he was, he thought it was a funny joke, and I didn't think it was a funny joke. Now, that isn't, I mean, really, um, but I don't think that that necessarily has had an impact either way, because uh, the, I don't know how many, I don't know who other than me would have noticed what happened, you know, that he'd, he'd changed. But I, I think it does work negatively when people use Ayn Rand as a punchline. And I think it worked negatively when people used Mickey Spillane as a punchline. It just isn't right. They should quit doing it. And um, I, I think some people who were second-handers 
might see Ayn Rand or Mickey Spillane mistreated and think, okay, I guess that's someone I can cross off my list. And then they don't actually make the first-hand encounter, which would ch might change their minds. So that's what I think. And I see I've got another question here. So when Ayn Rand wrote her critical review, criticizing oh, review, yes. um, do you know how did Spillane react to that? And did it change their relationship? Okay, all right, that's a reasonable question. Um, well, first off, I can just uh, plain r refer you to the fact that he gave his interview in 100 Voices, and that was years after, right? So you can look up in there and see what he said. He was asked, you know, she didn't like that one. He says, yeah, yeah, that was not on my camera. And, um, and he still had, you know, tons of positive things to say about her. It's also true that he didn't stop writing. He did stop writing The Tiger Man's, you know, pretty soon. And um, at, I'll say a little more about this at the other event, but um, essentially, which I know some of you aren't going to, but essentially she kept praising him afterwards and he kept praising her afterwards. And they didn't live in the same city, but he liked to see her when, and she didn't go visit him in South Carolina or anything, but he liked to see her when he was in town and he thought of them as friends. It's also true that her view, what she wrote there, it's fair to say that she wrote that, that's justice too. You know, she wrote that for her own readers so they, they would know that what she said about his other writing didn't go for this one. I mean, that's fair. You would do that, you know, if you'd recommended something to someone and then the person is a living writer and has written something else and you want to be sure that your endorsement and positive comments are not applied to this other work of which you disapprove. And, and she, you know, basically always liked the books that she'd liked. She didn't say, oh, and now I realize that the seeds of it were there all along. No. You know, what, what she liked before, she still liked. She, it is true that she knew that he was not deep philosophically. That was her department. You know, but, um, but she thought that he was, he was a good plot writer and that his style was often excellent, and she liked Mike. You know, she liked Mike Cameron. And this was a Tiger Man novel, you know, not, not a My Camera novel. So I think that's, that kind of covers the Day of the Guns episode, which I read it too, I didn't like it either. But, so I'm not exactly recommending that unless it's a matter of curiosity to you. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. One thing you didn't mention uh, is the part the, uh, where Ayn Rand read a passage from Mickey Spillane and a passage on a similar topic from Thomas Wolfe and then explained why she thought one was better than the other. Uh, that sticks in my mind because I heard her doing that analysis in person. Uh, and I'm wondering if there was any controversy coming out of that because it was a rather typical of her style, a uh, counterintuitive uh, kind of conclusion. Okay, well, um, it is true that I, I did mention that she did the stylistic analysis in the fiction writing course, right, which she did privately, and then they, she repeated that, that was, and it's in the Romantic Manifesto, you know, she's got those two descriptions of New York, 
and part of what she enjoyed about that was that uh, she was able to contrast them along particular dimensions that were important to her, including just having um, alert observation as opposed to generalized adjective hurling, you know, um, which you know, she, she thought that um, Tom Wolf was not presenting what he saw, but kind of up in the air, whereas Mickey Splane shows you the winking out, you know, what, what things actually look like. So that was, that's not the only stylistic, you know, she did the stylistic analyses of New York, she did stylistic descriptions of love, and she contrasted them. I think she enjoyed, because most of the time, you know, when she was talking about writing, she was not talking about style, but when you have examples in front of you, it's easier to talk about style because there it is. People, people can see it right for themselves without having to read the whole book. So I think that was one reason why, why she did that. She didn't read the whole book by Wolf, by the way, but she did, you know, pick, just saying, she, she, she did pick one lonely night, she read the whole thing. She, she did, well, she was not interested, but she did pick out that passage and she had things to say about it. And if you look at it, you can see where she's, what she's basing her views on. Yes. Yes. Could you uh, speak? Could you address uh, specifically what she found ob objectionable philosophically? You know, with, with in Day of the Guns. Yeah. Well, I could, um, but part of what I thought is that um, it's in print, and I've been trying to emphasize things that aren't in print. Um, if you look. It's in, might be October 1964, it's in the Objectivist Newsletter, which I believe we are, I don't get a kickback on this, but I, I believe we, we are selling these. And in brief, um, he's dealing there with some important political issues, but he's not dealing with them seriously. Or I think she says, one doesn't deal with issues like that, like that. And she also didn't like a certain aspect of the vigilante aspect, because it's clear in the My Camera books that he's a private investigator, he's got a badge, he can get along with the police, and the Tiger Man setup is much more shadowy. So I think those two, and the enemy is not as clear. Now, I've really just kind of mentioned a few things that she wrote about, but she writes about that much better than I do. And she, you know, and she says, because in the past I have recommended, I regret having to tell my readers that I do not extend my admiration to his latest work. But, you know, it's just treating important world political issues, force, when it's justified to use force, what's a, what's a government, differences between, these are all important issues and he folds it into the background of, of a spy story without doing, you might say, justice to the weight of the issues. But that's what, I think that kind of covers it. At least that covers what I'd, what I'd like to say. But you can go, we can go look over in the attendee services, they've probably got copies in there of the, the newsletter. And, um, and she calls it a book report, not a review. Okay, now did I have questions from the online people? Oh, it's the roar on the other side of silence. Okay, well, so I've, so I've got a little more time and I can tell you something else? Yes? 
Okay, all right, here we go. All right, I'm going to tell you about something I uncovered in my research because I'm always interested in uh, tracing trails. And this has to do with something you might have seen online because somebody put it up there and everybody thought it was funny. Okay, you may have read that the well-known and well-respected American writer Flannery O'Connor had a negative, no relation, had a negative view of Ayn Rand. Specifically, you may have read that she wrote, Flannery wrote to a friend, this makes me angry, but I'm going to read it anyway. I hope you don't have friends who recommend Ayn Rand to you. The fiction of Ayn Rand is as low as you can get, Ray, fiction. I hope you picked it up off the floor of the subway and threw it in the nearest garbage pail. She makes Mickey Spillane look like Dostoevsky, unquote. And people think that's funny. Okay, now, I know that Ayn Rand didn't like being confronted with unjust comments from critics, but this barely doesn't even register as a comment from a critic. There's no point to it. And if she were here, you know, the have to, I'd probably tell the context ahead of time. Here, I thought I would just share it with you. You can look it up. You can see it on Google. It's very annoying. But I figured that there might be more to the story and that I would try to find it out. Okay. And that turned out to be true. It turned out to be true that that comment reflects much more on Flannery O'Connor than it does on Ayn Rand or Mickey Spillane. Now, where's this comment come from? You'll find it published in an edited collection of O'Connor's letters published as The Habit of Being, and edited by Sally Fitzgerald. And the letter in question was, I can tell you more about her later if you want, but anyway, Sally Fitzgerald, she's the editor. And, you know, she edited it, so it's not exactly the way that Flannery O'Connor wrote it. The letter was written on May 31, 1960, to her friend Marriott, M-A-R-Y-A-T, Lee. But here's the thing. If you look at the letter to which she was responding, and I had permission from, from a relative to do that, you'll see that what's really been ignored or tossed in the garbage pail is the context, you know, why it was that Flannery O'Connor decided to say that. Marriott Lee had not picked up any book from a subway floor, nor does she mention having read Atlas Shrugged because of anyone's recommendation. The letter tells us that she had read the entire text of Atlas Shrugged, more than a thousand pages, so that's not a casual interest. And she says playfully that a certain part of it reminded her of Flannery O'Connor. It had to do with a long speech, okay? So publishing only O'Connor's nasty comment removes the atmosphere of a teasing interchange between friends, one of whom suggests that her friend, like a certain fictional character in Part 3, Chapter 7, has a tendency to deliver long speeches. Okay? So that's it. You know, but you don't see that when you say Flannery O'Connor you know, was condemning Ayn Rand. But, you know, it was sort of a joke between friends. I don't think she even read Ayn Rand herself. All right. I'll add, though, that Flannery O'Connor inadvertently does make a true point. She means to say that Ayn Rand is as far beneath Mickey Spillane as Spillane is beneath Dostoevsky. That's the, the thrust of the insult. But what she actually says is that Ayn Rand makes Mickey Spillane look like Dostoevsky. And in fact, Ayn Rand made a point of praising Spillane in terms that remind us of Dostoevsky. Right? Right? In her March 1964 interview with Playboy, she said she liked Mickey Spillane because, quote, he presents the conflict of good and evil in terms of black and white, 
and again, this is you know, Playboy, this is prominent. Um, he does not present a nasty gray mixture of indistinguishable scoundrels on both sides. He presents an uncompromising conflict. As a writer, he is brilliantly expert at the aspect of literature, which I consider most important plot structure. Okay, so that's what she says. But listen to what she's saying about Mickey Spillane. Black and white, good and evil, brilliant plot structure, uncompromising conflict. That's how she describes Mickey Spillane. Does that sound like any other writer we know? Yeah, right, sounds like Ayn Rand, but who else? She'd written of Dostoevsky in the Romantic Manifesto. I like Dostoevsky for his superb mastery of plot structure and for his merciless dissection of the psychology of evil. So, Ayn Rand makes Mickey Spillane look like Dostoevsky. And she speaks of them in the same paragraphs in the Romantic Manifesto. And I'm going to read from the paragraph where she describes her response in sense of life terms. Spillane, she writes, gives me the feeling of hearing a military band in a public park. As for Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky gives me the feeling of entering a chamber of horrors, but with a powerful guide. Well, doesn't that description of her response to Dostoevsky also describe her response to Mickey Spillane's world? It's a chamber of horrors, but with my camera at our side, we've got a powerful guide. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.